Go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Working our way through Genesis chapter 1 through 11 in this series called The Eden Story, Genesis 1 through 11. A lot to, to take in, but we're going to go ahead and dive into chapter 4 here. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 26. These are the words of God. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a cultivator of the ground. So it happened in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to Yahweh of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now cursed are you from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to Yahweh, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will be that whoever finds me will kill me. So Yahweh said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh appointed a sign for Cain so that no one who found him would strike him. Then Cain went out from the presence of Yahweh and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Then Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. And Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zalah. And Adah gave birth to Jabal, and he was the father of those who live in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for, for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. And Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give ear to my word, for I have killed a man for striking me, and a boy for wounding me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has set for me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Christ our Lord, and amen. You can be seated. A lengthy passage, but rather than being a passage about culture and man's development of culture, which it does have those things in it, the passage could also uh, very well be considered to be about worship, at least broadly speaking. The relationship between culture and worship is a relationship that is oftentimes ignored. In Scripture, one of the words for worship simply means bowing down. Uh, there's a couple different words we use in Greek. Pruskaneo is one of them. There's others. But those words mean bowing down or prostrating oneself before another. Um, quite literally, oftentimes when we say worship, we mean literally go to your knees and on your hands and knees in adoration of, of, of God. Now for Israel, 
you had calendrical moments of worship. They were on the calendar. They were fixed. They were there all the time. You had situational moments of worship, and you had spontaneous moments of worship. This involved feasts, things like feasts or pilgrimages, uh, where people would journey once a year for Passover to Jerusalem to celebrate. You had certain occasions that merited some sort of worship and adoration of God. For example, if a new high priest was put in place or a new king was inaugurated, that was a time for celebration. Uh, you also had worship at the tabernacle and the temple. And later on in the Israelite religion, you had synagogue worship, which is what the New Testament does with the church. The ecclesia is like a synagogue. And furthermore, when we get to the New Testament, we see that worship, worship does include God's people gathering together for covenant renewal. Um, when we go before the table and we confess our sins and we pray and we do all these things, we, we're singing, there's confessional statements that are made, there's teaching in the assembly, uh, the preaching of God's word, there's doxologies, there's offerings, and there's public readings of scripture. And all of those things we find echoed in various places in the New Testament. But that's what God's people do. That's what churches do. We, we gather as God's people like this. But we have to keep in mind that it wasn't limited to, to Sunday slash Lord's Day worship. That wasn't the only thing. When we think of worship, sometimes we just sort of think, oh, that thing we do on Sunday or when we sing and pray. That is part of it, but that's part of a whole. Uh, it's not the whole, it's part of the whole. All of life is to be lived in worship of the triune God. All of life is. Uh, worship is the natural Holy Spirit outworking of a life that's been integrated into true biblical faith. It means applying the Word of God to every area of life. Worship, worship actually, you can, you can use it almost, it can be used as a synonym for obedience. When we think of the word obedience, uh, we don't often tie it to worship. Usually we just tie it to things, oh, obedience, yeah, that's the law of God, and boy, is that difficult. Um, it's part, it is tied to it, but it's not the only thing. Um, obedience ought to be viewed in terms of worship, and worship ought to be viewed in terms of obedience as well. Now, enough of that as far as worship. Culture, as a word and a concept, is connected to uh, to worship, right? Connected to this concept of worship is the idea of culture. Uh, Gary North wrote this. He said, culture, the product of cooperative human action, is vital to the tasks of domestication. Men are expected by God to set down roots, build for the future, establish permanent institutions, and increase in wisdom, end quote. Now, this definition explains what culture does. When we think of culture, what, what do we do? Well, there are certain things that we, God expects of us as we build our families, build churches, build culture, uh, permanent institutions, building for the future, putting down roots, a, a, a calling of location and place, right? Um, that, is, that is part of it. But it doesn't, that definition doesn't really answer what culture is. And I suggest, this is my definition, culture is the historical development and unfolding of man's religious expression. That's when you think of the word culture, what is culture? It is the historical development and unfolding, the historical development and unfolding of man's religious expression. And that's what this text is all about. It's a historical development. It's the unfolding of something what is culture? What is unfolding to build culture? What is unfolding is man's religious expression. Henry Van Til told us, and he explained that culture is religion externalized, which is a great way to remind ourselves of it. What is culture? It's religion externalized. And I obviously wholeheartedly agree with that. Now, when we approach this passage, we find that culture is going to be developed. And it's highlighted here by Moses in chapter 4. Culture is going to be developed but the question is, what kind of culture? What kind of culture? Um, whose religious presuppositions, based on what religious commitments, are going to win and be most influential? And in today's scenario, the culture that Christianity gave the West, thanks to Calvinism and a stout understanding 
of worldview, all of that is being discarded in favor for more of a Marxist view of culture where everything is driven by socialism, envy, covetousness, and, and now that culture is winning right now because we haven't expressed our religious commitments in a certain cultural way. So the culture is always going to be present, right? Who's going to win? Is it the seed of the woman or the promise of the Messiah? That's Genesis 3.15. That, should be, that is the shadow that lingers over the entire book of Genesis. Who's going to win? The seed of the woman and the promised Messiah? Or is it going to be the seed of the serpent? But culture will always be present. It's always going to show up in some fashion. Will the culture demonstrate faith or apostasy? That's the question. Will it glorify God or will it glorify man? Will God be honored or will God be defied? Culture is simply the religious outworking of man's covenantal relationship with God, his worship, his worship of God. And it's either, again, in the worship of God whose image we bear, the true God, mind you, not a vague God that goes undefined, but the true God, or is it going to be the worship of man whose autonomous lusts drive him headlong into apostasy? And that's the tension of Genesis 4. Culture, at its root, is an issue of cultus. That's where the Latin word comes in, cultus. It means it's worship. That's the connection. Culture is worship. It's worship of someone, something. Someone's taking priority. And, of course, man's faith or unbelief is going to be the deciding factor. So culture isn't an end in itself. It's a means to the end of man's religious commitments and man's expression. So let's, let's consider our text. I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but um, I want to work through it, and you can follow along as we go. The passage explains life outside the garden. After Adam and Eve were sent out, what is life like outside of the garden? Life in a post-exilic state, life that must deal with sin that must deal with the fact that man has covenantally rebelled. There is now a covenantal estrangement from God. Adam and Eve have a child. Hooray. It's a wonderful occasion to have a child. They have a child, their firstborn son, and his name is, is Cain. Now, Adam and Eve, they must remain in obedience to God. Adam is still required to render worship to God, worship and obedience to God. He must still guard and protect uh, not only the land, but now his family. God has added to his family. So when families, men, when you have a wife and, and then you have more children, your job is amplified. More is called upon you because the more children you have, the more guarding is going to be required. So here we have one child. Surely it'll be fine. <laughs> so Adam and Eve, they're called to be fruitful and multiply. They're called to work. They're called to keep. They're called to carry out the dominion covenant, also called the cultural mandate. They're, they're called to reproduce. They're called to build and so forth. And childbearing is, of course, part of this task. Now, in Eve's mind, I think, and this is conjecture, so take it for what you will, but I think when they had their first child, I think that Eve probably thought that Cain was the promised seed. Surely he's going to be the one to crush the serpent. And isn't that what God said after all? I'm going to have, you're going to have children and multiply, and one of your seeds is going to crush the head of the serpent. Surely it's got to be Cain. Of course, either way, only time will tell. Now, when we're, when we're reading the Bible, we, we need to do a good job of understanding what the names mean. This, uh, if you remember our series in Judges, that was an important aspect to, to understanding how to interpret the text. Cain's name means smith or metal, metal worker. That's what Cain's name means. Essentially, Cain embodies man as he relates to the earth. Cain embodies man and man's relationship to the earth. Next, we have Abel. His name, uh, the Hebrew is Havel. It shows up in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is a Havel. It's a, a vapor. It's breath. Abel's name means vapor, breath. Um, he's the second born. So we have Cain, the oldest. Abel, the second born. Abel, uh, actually, he embodies man as he relates to heaven. So Cain, the firstborn, embodies man as he relates to the earth. He's a metal worker. He's a man of the ground. Abel embodies man as he relates to heaven. And we find here that there's this division of labor. Abel, we're told here in the text, is a keeper of flocks. Abel is a keeper of flocks. He's a shepherd. He is the prototype 
of heavenly authority and the priesthood. All right, Abel was a contemplative type. He enjoyed uh, his prayers, his songs. He enjoyed reading scripture, which wasn't there yet at that point, but <laughs> you understand what I'm getting at. Um, he cared much about reflecting the authority of heaven upon the earth. He was pastoral. We can say Abel was a pastoral type. He cared deeply about how heaven was represented to the earth. Now, Cain, we're, we're told here, however, he is a cultivator of the ground. Abel's a keeper of the flocks. He's a shepherd. He's a pastor. Um, but Cain, something else is going on. He's a cultivator of the ground. He is the prototype of earthly power and kingship. Abel is pastor-priest type. Cain is more like kingship. He relates the earth. Um, he isn't a contemplative type. He's a worker. He uses his hands. I'm sure he was uh, really good at digging out, you know, cisterns and or uh, um, outside porta potty. Maybe he was the first inventor of that. But either way, Cain cares about reflecting the power of earth, and that's kind of what we have with Cain and Abel here. Cain isn't pastoral at all. He's a farmer. Cain is a farmer. He's a tiller of the field, a worker of the field, the worker of the ground. Now, you need to know that there's an order here. There's an order to this Cain being the older brother and Abel being the youngest. Abel's job was to cover Cain with spiritual perception. Abel's job as a pastor was to lead and guide Cain to understanding spiritual matters, so to speak. Abel was like a priest to Cain. Cain, his job was to help support Abel with physical power from the crops of the earth. And there was this uh, reciprocating economy here. One was, remember, what, what, are, what are animals eating? They're eating of the ground, okay? Abel is the shepherd. Cain is working the food, feeding the family, feeding the flocks. There was this reciprocating relationship between Cain and Abel that was supposed to be in place. But problems occur as they sometimes do. In verses 4 through 5, we learn that Cain and Abel, he, they brought, both of them brought an offering to the Lord, and they brought it presumably to the entrance of the garden. Uh, James Jordan makes a good case for this. The garden was up a hill, a mountain range of sorts, so they would have had to go on, gone up the slope to the, to the entrance. Um, the offering, quite possibly, would be consumed by the fire sword of God. You remember the sword that was there, the flaming sword at the entrance? Quite probably, they brought their offering there, and the fire sword would be the thing that consumes the offering. Now, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the garden. No one could go in. They were not allowed to go in, but they could get close. They could come near to the holy place. At any rate, God accepted, we see, the bloody sacrifice of Abel, who understood well the problem of sin and the need for atonement. What did Abel bring? A firstborn from the flock, a bloody sacrifice. Abel, the spiritual-minded pastor, understands that there is something here. There's a problem of sin. My parents were in the garden. Imagine that dinner table conversation. And they messed that up. Don't bring it up at Christmas, right? Uh, they messed up. But Adam and Eve had to communicate this to their sons to train them to learn what holiness looks like, to, to repent of sin. Abel understood. He knew there had to be a bloody sacrifice. There's a problem of sin, and there needs to be a resolution. There needs to be atonement. But Cain, we learn, however, he was not that perceptive. He did not understand, or at least he was unwilling to understand. God didn't regard Cain's offering. And that is because of, I think you can summarize it with three things. One, it wasn't bloody. Why didn't God like Cain's offering? It wasn't a blood offering, which tells us something about Cain's perspective about his relationship with Yahweh. Two, Cain was half-hearted. Cain should have gone to his brother Abel and said, hey, I need a firstborn from your flock. What do you have? And I will trade you. We'll barter. I need a bloody sacrifice. But Cain was half-hearted. He didn't do that. He just thought he could take from the ground and bring it to God. And the third thing, God requires in worship, and this is a principle that transcends any specific time, but God requires in worship not just the outside work, but the inside heart too. 
We're told in Hosea 6.6 that God does not delight in the sacrifice of bulls. What does God want? He wants a pure heart. If all you're going to do is offer God your external, all right, I showed up to church, I'm going to take communion, and that's all you got. If your heart's not in it, you're not offering God anything. You're just doing, you're just going through the motions. You're not actually pondering by Holy Spirit power what it is God has called you to do. And that is you are supposed to be right with him through Christ. He's given you his son. You have everything, but you need to, you need to not be half-hearted. You need to plead the blood of Christ and not plead the, oh, I'm here and I look nice today. And that's a temptation for anybody, anywhere. By failing to get an animal from his younger brother, he chose, Cain, he chose in his pride to circumvent the priest, that's Abel, and assert his own superiority. What we have here is Cain asserting his own superiority. If you read the book of Leviticus, you'll learn about the tribute offering. And the tribute offering, what, what needed to happen was first, there needed to be blood. Animal blood was there as a substitute. But also, the plants came later. The grain offerings and the different offerings that included food and produce from the ground, that came after the blood. And Cain didn't bring the blood. He didn't bring the blood. Therefore, Cain didn't see himself the way God sees him. The most important thing in your life is for you to be able to know how God sees you. And if, and if you don't see how God sees you, whether that is a sinner in need of grace, you're going to be either prone to insecurity um, and not being sure of yourself and, and, and projecting and, and people-pleasing and everything else because you don't know that you are a child of God that he died for. You're not secure in that. Or you'll be in the other situation where you don't really understand that you do sin and that you need Christ, and then you start to assert your pride. But those are the options that we have. Cain brought self-justification to God, and because of it, God didn't regard his offering. So how does Cain respond to this? Well, he could have repented, but he actually he responded with anger. He, he responded with anger. His countenance fell, says verse 5, meaning... Cain was, digging into the Hebrew, you'll see this, but he was hot with rage. And actually, what's implied here is that he was angered, but then he was embarrassed and humiliated. So there's a play on words here. The, the heat of God's fiery um, consumption of the offering made Cain's face heat up, and thus Cain's going to put his heat, he's going to take his heat and put it elsewhere, as we'll see in a minute. Now, Yahweh confronts Cain in an, in an act of grace. It's a gracious thing to be confronted. Um, Cain wasn't destroyed because of his false worship. Instead of falling, Cain can be lifted up, God says in verse 7. You can be lifted up. And famously, we all remember this, God warns Cain, and, and if you do not do well, sin is lying or crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Like the serpent that crouched and was lying at the door, and he led Adam and Eve into sin, so the serpent's sin will always be there, ready to crouch and bite the heel of mankind. Now, to be lifted up, in this case, in Yahweh's case, to be lifted up is to be brought into the presence of God. We see that all the time in the book of Psalms. To be lifted up is, is instead of being uh, mere dust, you're lifted up into the presence of God, and that's quite literally the case because Eden was up on a mountain, we're told from Ezekiel. So you're lifted up into the presence of God. God was going to do that for Cain. Now, to be brought low, and that's why you have you repent in sackcloth and ashes. You know, people rip their clothing. You're identifying with the ground. You're, you're being brought low. To be brought low is to be brought to the dust earth, the place of sin, the place of the serpent where the serpent crawls on its belly. And Cain must master the sin by putting it to death and not giving in like his father Adam had done. And we all know what happens next. As the leader, the older brother, Cain said something to Abel, perhaps inviting him out to the field, the place of the king. Abel follows. Cain's job is to protect his, his brother. So he goes out and, well, we know what happens next. While there, Cain Curiously enough, the Bible says Cain rose up. 
Yahweh was supposed to lift him up and raise him up, but now Cain raises up on his own volition, not to defeat sin, but to give himself over to sin. And Cain exercises the office of a king, and he slays Abel the priest. And we see that in other places in the Old Testament. He kills him. He couldn't kill God in his rage and anger and embarrassment, but he could kill God's image-bearing priest. And rather than guarding his brother, he murders his brother. And now Cain, to be clear, wasn't jealous. He wasn't jealous. He was envious. There is a difference. Abel's offering was accepted. His was not. The only way to escape the feelings of uh, being inferior to his younger brother, the only way to escape that was to exterminate him, to shed his blood. Now, jealousy can be easily placated by things. Usually jealousy is something that can be abated by just ascertaining the thing that you want. Usually that's how jealousy works. But envy can only ultimately be placated by murder. And here's why. Jealousy is, 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 is motivated by a desire to possess something. Envy resents the person behind the situation. Um, Gary North said it this way. He said, only by destroying the other person's perceived advantage can he gain relief from the internal drive that moves him and motivates him toward destruction. And that's why Jesus identifies hatred in the heart towards your brother as murder. Because that's the logical outcome of where that goes. If your bitterness turns into anger towards someone, the only way to satiate that is to eliminate them. And that's what murder does. And we'll talk more later about that. So Yahweh confronts the situation graciously. Once again, he's very gracious here. He goes to Cain and says, where is Abel your brother? Verse 9. The same question was posed to Adam in the garden. Remember, Adam, where are you? Here we have the same situation. And Cain responds with a lie because sin enjoys adding more sin to its repertoire. He essentially replies, well, listen, God, Abel is the shepherd here, the one who kept track of the animals. He's the one in charge of the sheep. He's good at math. He can keep things in order. Um, I'm not the manager and guardian of humans. I deal with plants. I grow crops. I, I, I've grown some nice corn over here. Don't you? Can you see? You know, right? I'm the one who does that. See, Adam was supposed to guard the garden and his family. Cain, who is a new Adam, was supposed to guard the land and his brother. He was supposed to be like his dad, but better. Isn't that what every father wants of their sons? Be like me, but better. See, Cain's retort was from a heart of deceit and guile. Well, you can't find Abel? Yahweh, what's the deal? He's the sheep herder. Cain's essentially saying, well, perhaps he's lost like one of his sheep. He can't do math after all. He can't even keep track of himself. That's what Cain is saying. See, Cain abdicates his responsibility as the firstborn and thus the double inheritor. The firstborn always got a double inheritance. And he wasn't called to be his brother's keeper. He wasn't called to be his brother's keeper, but as many have said, he's actually called to be his brother's brother. So Yahweh, hearing the blood cry out from the ground, he curses Cain directly in verse 11. Adam was to work the soil, but it would be a challenge. Cain now, in verse 12, wouldn't even be able to work the soil. The curse goes further with Cain. Cain was to be homeless with nowhere to lay his head, but he thinks it's too much, verse 13. He thinks someone will kill him, verse 14. God graciously protects him by putting a sign on him, probably something on his skin or his face, perhaps on his forehead. We don't know. That's in verse 15. And having, having been energized by his disobedience, he marries one of his sisters, presumably all of them rebellious, moves outward. He musters up the strength to build a city in the land of Nod, naming it after his son Enoch. And that was even further east of Eden, verses 16 and 17. So Cain has turned his back on God. When you go east, you turn your back on God. That's what Cain had done. He will not repent. He has joined forces with the serpent. Rather than making war on the serpent, he makes war on God. And God, though, in his common grace, he was good to Cain, but Cain wanted nothing to do with him. Now, in the Hebrew, it kind of comes out, he wanted to build a city, but he wanted to wall it off so that Yahweh could not get to him. 
That was the idea that Cain was going for. He wanted to wall it off so that he could stay in there and Yahweh couldn't find him, couldn't get to him. Now, Cain is not a God-fearer. He is a God-rejecter. That is clear. But Cain's life would now be marked by self-preservation. He would always feel haunted. He would always be on the run. He would always be paranoid. And that's what sin makes you do. The rest of the chapter describes Cain's descendants, including we have the arrival of an actual new Adam, thankfully, the arrival and birth of Seth. Now, I want to highlight just real quickly a few, a few of Cain's descendants here. Enoch was first, and Cain named the city after his son. Um, and Cain's the one who built it, not Enoch, but he named it e Enoch. His name means dedicated. So Cain dedicated the city to his son. Erad means city dweller and wild donkey. A city-dwelling wild donkey. It's hilarious, kids. You can laugh. Uh, Mahujael means one who strikes back against Yahweh. Um, Methushael means killer of the peace of God. Lamech is actually a Hebrew wordplay. On the Hebrew word king is Melech. So Lamech the Melech. There's a play on words. The point here is Cain's ungodly line gets worse and worse. Things get really bad and then get even worse, as if you could imagine such a thing. Now, Lamech was undoubtedly, he was the self-proclaimed king of the world at this time. Um, that's not really super debated. Some people do debate it. But probably Lamech, he was king of the world. Uh, the first real empire was Lamech's kingdom. He had two wives, and the reason you have multiple wives is to expand your power, which is you're not supposed to do. Uh, Lamech was king. He had two wives, growing his empire. He had children from each of them. We have Jabel, Jubal, Tubal. Say that really fast. Jabel, Jubal, Tubal. It's a play on words as well. Jabel, he was a herdmaster. This is the development of economics. Culture is happening here. Uh, Jubal developed musical instruments. Uh, the arts were developed by him. Developing different musical instruments, making noise, no doubt uh, a wonderful project. Tubal Cain was a metallurgist. He was someone who dug in the ground and created technology. Um, so we have arts, we have economics, we have technology. Their sister, Nema, whose name means sweet singer, apparently she's the first opera singer. <laughs> uh, though I don't think it was opera. But she was a beautiful singer of sorts. That's what her name means. Now, King Lamech had a song, presumably with instrumentation from his kids. And in the song, he slew one of his own sons, and he brags about it, and he makes himself as God, claiming the 77-fold vengeance over against the sevenfold vengeance of God against Cain. When you read a passage like this, your conclusion is Lamech has a God complex. He was willing to murder one of his own sons. And he built a city on its blood, on his blood. We're going to look more about it this next week and we compare the lineage here. And uh, we'll talk, I think, I think we're getting to the Nephilim because everybody's, on, well, that's in chapter 6, but everybody's hanging on the edge of their seats. I'll just tell you, I don't know. <laughs> but I'll give you some theories and you can pick one. But the birth of Seth happens, all right? Seth is a new beginning. Adam and Eve had lots and lots and lots and lots of children at this point. Um, that's where Cain's wife came from. Wasn't gross then, shouldn't do it now. But here, we have a promised seed in place of Abel. We have a promised seed in place of Abel. Seth's name means foundation. I don't know if you knew that. Your name means foundation. Seth's name is a, he's a foundation, and God's going to strike back at the serpent with a new godly family. Now, Seth has a son. He named him Enosh. Enosh in Hebrew means mankind, but it actually speaks of the frailty of mankind, the, the, the fragility of mankind. Enosh is mankind in utter dependence on God. So Seth shows up, thank the Lord, things are going to be okay. And in verse 26, we see that men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Seth is the opposite of Cain. Seth replaces Abel, but he's actually even better than Abel. It's pointing to something better. Seth gives his entire life to Abel. 
we'll develop that more next week. So how, how, how shall we then live? It's obvious, wicked men can build culture. <laughs> it happened then, it happens now. W- wicked men can build culture, but only when driven by envy and self-glorification. That'll come up in, in chapter uh, 11 when we get to the Tower of Babel. Now, remember my definition. Culture is the historical development and unfolding of man's religious expression. That's what culture is. Culture making is inevitable. It is inexorable. It is inescapable. Even Cain's descendants who built economies and built the arts and musical instruments, who who learned how to develop bartering systems and trade and all these culture expressions, even they were given a gift of common grace. So the fact that um, a bunch of not Jesus worshipers developed the iPhone is actually a it's, it's an act of common grace. You've been given a mind and creativity to develop and explore, though not all technological advan- advancements are good, I would warn us, right? But they've been given that by common grace. God is good. And yet, culture-making is always downstream from religious worship. And that, let me say it this way. The God you serve in your heart is the God you'll bring to fruition in your work. If, if culture is animated by false doctrine, false theology, the false doctrine will be worked out. It will be manifested in cultural expression. Uh, godless, we can say this another way, godlessness in the heart leads to godlessness in art. Look at modern art today. We saw some in Kansas, some statues, and you sit there and what is that? Well, modern art is not meant to tell you what it is. It's not interpreting reality. It's not explaining truth. It's just trying to make you think nothing, but question it. <laughs> but that's, there's co- the, the confusion in culture is expressed in the confusion in even something like modern art today. Let me give you another apt example. It's certainly one that's apropos given last week's message. And it pertains to Cain and his murder of Abel. All men are imputationists. Let me explain that. All men are imputationists. Imputationists. That is, men are plagued with sin. And not only are they plagued with sin, they are plagued with a guilty conscience that doesn't know what to do about this plague or what to do or where to put it. That is the condition of mankind before grace. We, we have sin, we have anger in our hearts, we have jealousy, covetousness, envy. It expresses itself in certain ways, adultery, fornication. It, it, it expresses itself all over the place, and we don't know what to do with it. And that, our culture today doesn't know what to do with the sin that lurks in their heart that comes out in certain ways. Now, their sin must go somewhere, and if it isn't the cross of Christ, it will invariably go to other image bearers. And I can think of no other more pressing matter than the sin of child sacrifice that we talked about last week. The termination of children in the womb is a false doctrine of imputation. Rather than receiving the imputation of Christ's righteousness, Christ gives us his righteousness. We give him our sin. He pays for it on the cross. Rather than doing that, the manslayer imputes his own sinfulness onto other image bearers. That is what murderous hearts always do. And this is what Cain had done as well. Cain's anger could have been taken out in repentance, but instead it was taken out in the bloodshed of his brother Abel. Murder arises in hearts that are implacably broken and sullied by envy and unmitigated power. When murder, when hatred gets to a place and you have such a hatred and a callousness towards other image bearers, it's just unmitigated power. You can think of nothing else to do but kill. And that is a very, very evil place to be. If a man will not repent of his sin and give it over to Christ who died in his place for that sin, then he will always seek to put it somewhere else. And it could be murder, it could be jealousy, it could be gossip, it could be slander, it could be fornication, it could be language, it could be besmirching others. But place it, he must. And if you don't place that sin on the cross, it's going to go on other people. And this is why we cannot read a passage 
like this, apart from the larger story of the kingdom of God. There are plenty of lessons to learn here. We could spend weeks upon weeks in one passage. But, but here's a lesson to learn. Repentance in blood goes first. Self-justification is no justification. When you're caught in sin or you're caught in turmoil or you're suffering for whatever reason, blood goes first. Christ must go first. We could also, godly fear is always better than fear as God. Uh, remember that Lamech intended to strike fear into the hearts of everyone by attempting to be better and more powerful than God. There's so much in this text, but it kind of all brings together, well, all of them certainly are things we should look at, but it, we're going to come back to one of those momentarily. But for now, we need to know that Abel's blood is a type of Christ's blood. Abel is a type of Christ. The New Testament picks this up. Jesus himself, you remember, cries out in Matthew 23 and Luke 11. He cries out that the blood of Abel cries out against every generation, especially generations that are steeped in wickedness. And in Jesus' day, that generation was under judgment. And, and, and Christ himself says, the blood of Abel is on your hands. The blood of all the prophets, the blood of everyone up until this moment is on you. Now Hebrews clarifies that Jesus' blood is better than Abel's blood. Hebrews 12, 24. And, and indeed, Jesus' blood is better than Abel's. But why? Well, because the blood of Christ is covenantally faithful blood. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover sin. The blood of Christ is actually pure and unvarnished blood. The only sin that is put there with the blood of Christ is our sin. Christ had no sin. And the blood of Christ actually takes away sin rather than being merely a result of sin, which was Abel's blood. Abel, despite being considered a righteous man, he was not a perfect man, of course. Abel still had a sinful nature, and Abel's breath, that's a pun, his name means breath, but Abel's every breath was lived coram Deo before the face of God. Abel went to offer a sacrifice and knew that it needed to be blood because he was a sinner. And Abel knew the severity of sin. He knew the severity of Yahweh's wrath against it, which is why Abel brought that bloody sacrifice that day. Now in Leviticus and other places, we, we learn that the sacrificial system was put in place in order for God to, one, dwell with his sinful people, and two, teach them about holiness and sin. Now, kids, listen carefully to this because I, this can be confusing, and I'm going to clarify this. When, when we talk about the blood of, of um, animals and all of this that was used in the Old Testament system, all of that was there. That was put forth by God to essentially say the worshiper should be thinking this. This animal is going to die in my place. I am the one who should die because I have sinned against God. My sin will be imputed to this animal animal in terms of the ritual that Yahweh has set up here. But make no mistake, I'm the one that should die. It should be me. That's why it was put in place. And imputation is a core doctrine of Christian theology. Um, if that's the first time you've ever heard that, we'll talk later about it, because it is a core doctrine and it's an important doctrine. The, the shadow is the, is the Levitical system, but Christ is the fullness the blood of animals don't take away sin anymore. They, in fact, they never really took away sin. They just covered. That's what atonement was. It just covered your sin. Christ takes it away completely. At the cross, Christ takes our sin. It's truly nailed there, and then it's buried in the tomb. At the cross, Christ gives us his righteousness, and the resurrection seals it because the Spirit does the work of applying it. And the reason this matters is because history and culture are marked by the seed wars found in Genesis 3. That's Genesis 4. It's just the seed war. Remember from two weeks ago that Eve was promised in the gospel from her would be a seed that would crush the serpent's head. The problem that Eve has is she's giving birth both to Satan worshipers and God-fearers. And all of history is that until the time of Christ. But that's what Christ has done. He has crushed the serpent's head. That's what the, the cross is, the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. 
His heel was bruised by the serpent. Christ's death was painful. It was a miserable time on the cross that Friday afternoon. It was horrendous, excruciating pain. In fact, even our word excruciating comes from that word with the cross. But Christ took on our sin, and there's no reason to think that perhaps Cain would be the only one. Now, as the story developed, no doubt Adam and Eve were disturbed by what happened with their oldest son. We don't, we're not told what happened, but imagine having that family meeting. Well, one of our kids is dead. The other one is nowhere to be found. How did that conversation go with Adam and Eve? Well, a lot of our kids went with Cain. They're all evil. What is going on here? <laughs> they were disturbed. I'm sure they cried a lot of tears because of their son and what happened. I'm sure of it. They cried a lot of tears over what happened. Their son abdicated his responsibilities. He chose to do battle against Yahweh instead of the serpent. I mean, that's like a, a, a parent's nightmare. One of your kids who's just gone astray. It's difficult. It's difficult. But the curse on the woman of Genesis, in Genesis 3 was real. Childbearing would be tough. And we're not just talking about labor and delivery. We're talking about child rearing. It would be a challenge, and she felt it, the sting of it, right away. Sin was crouching, and rather than mastering it, Cain gave himself entirely to it. And he wasn't the new Adam that he was supposed to be and should have been. He had not learned the lesson that Adam taught him. But the New Testament says a lot about Cain, but I'm just going to read two uh, verses. On the front of your bulletin, it has one of the verses here. But 1 John 3 says this, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Jude verse 11 says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay they have poured themselves out in the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Our culture today has gone the way of Cain. To go the way of Cain is to go the way of apostasy and lawlessness and hatred. Going the way of Cain leads to statism. It leads to oppression, as evidenced by Lamech's family tree. Statism is definitely a culture, by the way. It's definitely a culture, but it's a terrible culture built on terrible theology. And I want to close here by reminding you of something from Genesis 3. We've already talked about seed wars and... The seed of the serpent would be manifested in the woman's seed, and, and that means Eve's progeny would either serve the living God or they would serve the serpent. But this is the religious foundation that builds cultures. Frankly, this is the story, the story of humanity. This is, think about Eve's. Eve's children, they flourish. Even the wicked children of Cain flourish. Eve's great-grandkids build culture, and they do all of that, but only because of God's common grace. But the children of righteousness, we are called to flourish too, and this is because of what Jesus Christ has done in our place. And listen, here's where this plays out. The seeds, notice we're talking about seeds. The seeds become either trees or thorns. The seeds become trees or thorns. Now, men are either trees built up in Christ, or they are thorns hugging the ground like the serpent, their father. Thorn bushes don't grow to be huge, tremendous, beautiful trees. They don't. That's why Abimelech is compared to that in the book of Judges. He's the thorn bush that all the trees said, well, you rule over us. Problem. But everything in life proceeds from this status. If you're a tree or a thorn, and children, you want to be trees. You don't want to be thorns. And the only way that's going to happen is to cling to Christ. And those are the only options for culture. It's Cain and Lamech versus Abel and Seth. And actually, at the end of the day, we know that ultimately our battle isn't against flesh and blood because the battle isn't ultimately against an apostate culture. Now, clown world is definitely, definitely upon us, right? It is true. It's the most apt description out there on the internet. Clown world. It is clown world, and it's upon us. 
But at its root, we're not talking about clowns. We're, we're not even talking about the people who act like the clowns. We're talking about sin and rebellion at the core, the way of Cain. And of course, the battle manifests itself in flesh and blood, as no doubt Abel knew quite well, but the root, the root is religion and worship. It's not culture and art. The root is, it's not even politics. Like, politics is a problem today, but that's not the primary thing. What is feeding the politics? It's unrighteousness. So Cain, that, you know, Cain and Lamech versus Abel and Seth, but that's not even really the ultimate story. That points to something bigger. The real battle is Christ versus the serpent. And even then, the battle really is Christ versus sin because the serpent is just one who does the bidding. And Christ has already won the war. We're simply doing the mop-up job. Christ is risen and he is seated. Who can dethrone him? Who can? Status pawns? The sexual devolutionaries, the apostate, none can stay his hand, friends. No reason to fear. Christ is Lord. Christ is seated. Christ does whatever he pleases. And cultures are one when the, men's, the hearts of men are one, which means the, the victory must be announced. The church must be built on that foundation. Seth's name means foundation, but Christ is the foundation. He's the new Adam. He's the better Abel. He's the sturdier Seth. Let's pray. God, we give you the glory today, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for you guiding and directing the work of history. And we thank you, Jesus Christ, that you are supervising this work of history. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that your active involvement is to carry out the will of the Father. And we pray for our church here that we would be trees and not thorns. And we pray for our children as well, that they too would grow up to be strong, sturdy trees that are next to the water, as Psalm 1 indicates, who are being nourished by Christ and the work of your Spirit. God, keep the covenant promises that you have made to us. Hold us close to that covenant promise. Hold our children close to that covenant promise as well. And may you be glorified in what we do. And may Christ's kingdom prevail here on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask this, of course, in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.